0: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall Yale's Peabody Museum will reopen to the public in 2024 with more gallery and classroom space. But the museum you may have visited when a child or brought your kids to will be different in another way. The Peabody is reimagining its 145-year-old space by embracing a new approach to storytelling and involving community members in the process. Today, where we live, we find out more about how the Peabody aims to be a museum for everyone. And later, we hear how Sanctuary Kitchen, a nonprofit catering and entrepreneurial program for refugee women, factors into all of this. First, joining us now on Zoom is Kaylin Rogers. She's Associate Director of Exhibitions at Yale Peabody Museum. Kaylin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We're going to be talking more about this new storytelling approach, but remind us what prompted this years-long renovation at the Peabody.
2: Uh, Absolutely. We were lucky enough to get a donation um, that allowed us to renovate our space Add more collection space, add more gallery space, and really give us an opportunity to rethink what the Peabody could be. Um, So we are now about five years into the process and we have two more to go.
0: So it's a long time coming thinking about how a natural history museum uh, can be revamped right for uh, today's uh, generation and I think back to when I've taken my children to the Peabody when it was opened or just when visitors come. I mean the Dinosaur Hall was pretty popular of course peering into all those dioramas. We're going to be learning more about um, how those dioramas will will change and the information around them will be changing coming up. But can you briefly uh, tell our listeners Listeners, when we think about these popular exhibits, you know how they may look in twenty
2: twenty four. Absolutely. Um, so our dinosaurs, our big dinosaurs, are currently in Canada being um, re- revamped for our their debut again in twenty twenty four. But we are um, still going to have a lot to look at in the in the Great Hall, the Dinosaur Hall, uh, as well as the dioramas that have become such a, a beloved part of the Connecticut Museum experience. And and then also our mineralogy hall is largely going to be unchanged, but many of the other spaces are going to look quite different from the last time we visited.
0: So that's as much of a preview as we'll get, right? (laughs) We'd love to come back to (laughs) Caitlin and do a walkthrough. But for today's show, when we think about, you know, this need and how the Yale Peabody Museum is thinking about overhauling the storytelling that happens in a museum, tell us uh, where this uh, approach came from and why now?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So this was something, I joined the Peabody in the spring of 2019, and the development of the exhibitions was already well underway at that point. Um, But we had an opportunity then to sort of think about our storytelling approach. Um, And so I have always been interested personally in different ways into understanding material, Um, even though I have a a biology degree, I am far from an expert in paleontology or or anthropology. Um, And, finding ways for more people to feel welcome, that this was a space for them, um, and that the museum was relevant to them and their families was important to us. So that was sort of the point at which we started.
0: When you talk about the museum being relevant to us, talk more about that, because I had mentioned, you know, this is a 145 year old space uh, when it was first founded, of Mm -hmm. course, in 1866. And it was at a different location, I believe. And so the idea that, you know, making a museum open and and feel welcome to everyone, you know, how do you begin?
2: Yes, um, absolutely. So. One of the key things that we have been working on is expanding the range of experts. Who counts as an expert and, and you know, who should be telling the stories in these spaces? Um, so that can range from bringing in more voices from the Yale community, including students, um, from New Haven and from some of the cultures who's, who have ties to the collections in our
3: museum.
0: I understand and we'll be hearing more uh, coming up from some of the team members thinking about ways to Mm -hmm. bring the community in to be more involved. But, uh, you know, understanding that, you know, 10% of the labels uh, that uh, people may be used to reading next to dioramas or some of the other collections will now be sourced from people outside the museum. So can you talk about that effort?
2: Absolutely. And so this is going to be in in galleries across the museum and from all the different collections that we are going to be um, opening up that storytelling space to uh, people outside of the museum. It could be everything from poems to um, research on economics or uh, engineering or some of the student work from from cultural institutions and organizations um, that we are partnered with. And in in addition to that, we have a number of cases reserved still in several spaces in the museum that um, we will be offering to partners to curate um, for uh, alongside of the cases that have been curated by our curatorial
0: teams. That sounds like an exciting opportunity, again, for, for the local community to get involved. I understand from uh, Chris Norris, who's director of public programs, uh, when we're thinking about uh, ways museums can be more inclusive, you know, also thinking about, you know, the question of, you know, what right a museum has to an object or artifact? What authority does a museum get to interpret it? And so how do you work those questions into this process?
2: Absolutely. And those are very important questions that museums around the world are grappling with today. Um, One thing I'm very excited about is the fact that there is so much momentum around trying to find answers to those uh, in the field. So one part of that is repatriation efforts. Another is revisiting collection policies. Um, And in our corner in exhibitions at the Peabody, something that we can do immediately is Attempt to broaden the range of stories and storytellers that we're bringing in Um, and to show um, really to demonstrate that. There are a lot of other types of uh, authority that we should be sharing with the public.
0: You're hearing Kaylin Rogers here on Where We Live. She's Associate Director of Exhibitions at Yale Peabody Museum. As we talk and learn more about the museum's renovations, but also this new storytelling approach that the museum is embracing to be more inclusive, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Kaylin, uh, when I think about the curators, these are Yale scholars, experts in their field. Their voices are important. Their research is important. And how you'll work that, again, and into uh, this new Peabody Museum opening in 2024 alongside some of this community perspective you're talking about.
3: Yes,
2: absolutely. We have wonderful scholars, um, both in our faculty curators and also the collection managers who are on staff at the museum. Um, Their enthusiasm for their fields and and bringing this information to the public is really unparalleled, but um, we have been working with them over the past 18 months now, I guess it's been, um, in, in part funded by a Connecticut Humanities Grant to think about why it is important to bring these other voices in alongside theirs
0: um, and how those can fit together. Again, you can join us if you have a question about uh, the Peabody renovations, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. When I look back, uh, when thinking about the history of the Peabody Museum, the the idea that your collection is so large, 14 million objects. Uh, so thinking about when you reopen in 2024, you know, how you'll be changing those that it's not, uh, you know, um, so static,
2: Absolutely. So um, we will have a a number of objects that people are familiar with will be making an appearance. Again, we'll be bringing in some of the other objects and collections that normally don't get displayed in the museum. And then really our policy um, has been to design these galleries so that we can rotate out the objects on display and the stories on display easily and frequently.
0: Uh, we had uh, the state historian on our show a few weeks ago, Walt Woodward, uh, and he was talking to us about when we think about who attends museums, you know, um, most often they're middle-aged white women who are the primary attendees. And so when you mm-hmm. hear that and you think about ways to engage people from different backgrounds, I mean, that's the challenge, right, Kaylin? Oh, absolutely. Um, a big A big part of what we're thinking about is representation
2: in the space. Um, And that goes from everything to everything from who do visitors encounter on the floor um, to who's represented in photographs. So for example, um, one that we've been talking about recently is showing some images of paleontologists today in comparison to the white men in suits from um, the middle of the 19th century.
0: Oh, I love that. So thinking back to the, the bone wars, so to speak, O.C. Marsh and others <laughs> and what paleontologists look like today. Exactly. Yes. And where, so did, that idea of, where, did, of, where did that idea come from?
2: Um, That came from a number of places. One is from our SciCor program, um, which is our our on-floor interpreters, Um, I think you'll hear a little bit more about later in the show, and they had started even doing a study of um, the images on our HeBody website to see who was represented and in what context. Um, Another point, even just from last week, I got a text from one of the postdocs who was working on one of our fossil galleries with one of those photos. And he said, what do you think we should do about this? Can we recreate this um, in in a modern way?
0: Again, you're hearing Kaylin Rogers here on Where We Live. Yale Peabody Museum's Associate Director of Exhibitions as we talk more about this new storytelling approach uh, as the museum is uh, in uh, extensive renovations to reopen in 2024. Coming up we're going to hear more about how the Peabody is working to make the museum more inclusive. We're going to talk to two Yale students involved in the work and you can join us as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live
1: support for this podcast comes from hartford health care elevating health is funded by hartford health care
0: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nall Renovations are underway at the Yale Peabody Museum to reimagine its gallery space before reopening to the public in 2024. But there are also efforts to rethink how the museum tells the stories of its collections by bringing in new perspectives to engage more visitors from different backgrounds. Some of the people involved in the work join us now on Zoom. Uh, Niti Jen, a Graduate Research Fellow working with the Exhibitions Team at the Peabody. She's a second-year master's student at the Yale School of the Environment.
4: Niti, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you so much for having us.
0: Also with us on Zoom, Natasha Ghazali, currently a senior at Yale College and she's a project team member as well and a former member of the Peabody SciCorp Program, an educational program with area high school students. Natasha, welcome to where we live.
3: Hi, good morning. i excited to speak with you.
0: you know, I was thinking uh, many people listening have a personal experience uh, at the Peabody. And so Neeti, before you talk about the work that you're involved in, you know, tell us about when you went to the museum, what stood out to you? What excited you about the Peabody?
4: Well, I have to say, unfortunately, I haven't Ever been to the Peabody myself, by the time I moved to New Haven, the museum was already closed for renovations. But I have had the opportunity to get to experience the collection uh, a little bit digitally and, and in the background. And I think what I've been most excited about is just seeing the uh the ways in which the stories come alive through not just the objects but the but the labels themselves. And Uh, something that I've really learned is there are so many ways to tell a story about an object. And so something that um, seems rather plain on the surface might have 10 or 20 different things that you could say about it. And the deeper you go, the more there is to be excited about. Mm -hmm.
0: Natasha, I believe you grew up in Connecticut. What was your experience at the Peabody?
4: Yeah, so I'm from the New Haven
3: area. And honestly, I would say that I grew up at the Peabody, Um, I joined the Evolutions After School program my second year of high school and have just kept really strong ties with the museum since then. I've met some of my closest friends there, um, and it was my first job ever, also working on the floor as an interpreter.
0: What was that like to be on the floor as an interpreter, seeing how visitors engaged with the collection? What kind of questions did they have?
3: Right. I think I was actually surprised um, by the questions visitors would ask us. Sometimes there were questions we didn't even know the answers to in our training and prepping for talking about the actual objects on display. We would have families and adults coming in asking, like, which of these specimens are real? How are they procured? How did we bring them here to the museum? How are they preserved and restored over the years? And sometimes that led into, like, uncomfortable conversations of really reckoning with the museum's history.
0: Mm-hmm. Niti, can you add to that, you know, hearing Natasha talk about um, how visitors would respond to collections and building on that with this approach you're taking today?
4: Yes, definitely. I think a huge part of the museum experience is getting to experience stories from around the world and objects that you wouldn't encounter in a in a day-to-day um, and that that's really been my experience too with museum spaces, and that's what I wanted to bring into the research and the work that I'm doing with ELP Body Museum. I know that growing up, uh, I visited museums uh, with my family on free days or on discounted days, and that's where so much of my own um, environmental ethic and desire to form a career started. The first uh, science museum I went to, I decided that I wanted to be an Egyptologist because I got (laughs) to see collections from the Egypt gallery. And every single experience I found was truly transformative. And so I wanted to make sure that that kind of experience that I had at the museum was something that felt open and accessible for audiences from all different kinds of backgrounds. And I know that I've often felt very, very grateful to be in that space. But when I look around sometimes in a museum, I don't often see people that look like me. And that was an important consideration when I started this work uh, and really thinking about when people come into a space that is filled with so much wonder, so much excitement and curiosity, do they feel welcome in, in a space like that? Do they feel like this is a space that has been designed for them and is open and accessible for them?
0: So, Niti, let's talk more about uh, the space designed for them, uh, the, the public, uh, the community members, and so many that come to New Haven just to attend or to see the Peabody Museum. When we look at the well-known dioramas, talk more about the process of of changing how uh, visitors will interact with those.
4: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and this has been a project that has been so wonderful to work on because of the room we've had to really reimagine what a label can be for a museum. I think sometimes there's the belief that a label has to tell everything that you could possibly imagine about a space or an object that it has to be fully comprehensive but we know that sometimes labels like that can feel intimidating because not everybody wants to come into the museum necessarily to um read a lot of words and and certainly there are many many visitors who are excited to learn and 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 take something away from a label. But there are also visitors who want to relax and spend an afternoon with their families or see something that really excites them. And so when we were thinking about labels around the dioramas and even in other galleries, we wanted to make sure that they offer that kind of experience for visitors who might be looking for a range of experiences. It was really important to not just think about everything that we can tell about a species or a landscape but try to pull out the pieces that would feel the most exciting and engaging to maybe young children, maybe students who are visiting, maybe older family members who want to share something with their grandchildren or or with nieces and nephews and think about how that can be a really reimagined way to talk about labels. Mm-hmm.
0: Natasha, uh, you know, getting to what, Nita, what Niti was saying about uh, making uh, families excited when they're they're viewing these dioramas. Um, I think you were quoted as uh, saying this is about the Pixar effect. Can you explain that to us?
3: Right. Yes. So I was on a team of three in writing these new labels. I was with Joseph Jackson, who also was a SciCorps employee, and Paula Mock, who was also a SciCorps employee. And I think the Pixar effect really shined through in some of the games that we had put on the label cards that we made. Uh, There are two sides to the card, and we created a Can You Spot Me game. And the whole point was to sort of make the dioramas come alive by giving character to the different animal species and plant species. And so some of the language would be kind of tongue-in-cheek, and we'd have these jokes that could potentially go over the heads of kids. I think my favorite one, we were talking about a duck at one point, and Joe's description for the Can You Spot Me game was like, making my way downstream paddling fast to reference like a thousand miles by Vanessa Carlton, which I'm not sure the youngins (laughs) today would know, but it was a cultural
0: lyric for me. I love that. Uh, Neeti, did you want to add to that? And maybe conversely for people who uh, will be going to the Peabody Museum and maybe looking, they still want to see that the, 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 the dense descriptions, the scientific insight, will that also be there?
4: Definitely. And, one of the huge themes that I heard as we were working on, on the Diorama Project with PsyCore was just that we wanted to give people the agency to choose the kind of experience that they want. So if they only want to engage with a 20-word label that really makes them feel like they're in the middle of the landscape or with a small game that is is funny and tongue-in-cheek, as Natasha has just said, absolutely, that's, that's an experience that they can have. But for the people that want to Seek out a little bit more. There are so many ways to do that. Certainly there will be staff there to chat with and and hopefully provide an experience that's not just limited to reading. Uh, There will be opportunities for other audiovisual elements. The cards that Natasha has just mentioned, those offer yet another point of engagement. So With the dioramas, for example, um, a family can choose just to read the label underneath the dioramas, or they can grab one of those cards and walk around with them and read the guiding questions that Natasha has written up so beautifully, or play the game, and really decide to what extent they want to engage with that particular experience that day. And the, uh, the other hope is that every time they come back, there will be something new to experience because they get to sort of choose their own adventure as they walk through the galleries. You're
0: hearing Niti Jen here on Where We Live, a graduate research fellow working with the exhibitions team at the Peabody and a second-year master's student at Yale School of the Environment. Also with us, Natasha Ghazali, who's currently a senior at Yale College, and she's also working on the project team on um, the relabeling these North American dioramas. You can join us as well uh, if you've attended the Peabody Museum in in years past. What stood out to you? What are you looking forward to when it reopens? 888 720 967 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, Aniti, I wanted to go back to something you'd said when uh, you uh, mentioned when you attended museums and at one point wanted to be an Egyptologist. uh, Mm -hmm. Something that Natasha had said earlier about the questions that um, uh, uh, museum visitors have related to, you know, how uh, Yale acquired some of these uh, artifacts or remains and and how they're displayed and sometimes that can be uncomfortable conversation. So how do you work that into the work that you're doing now?
4: Yeah, yeah. We've actually been seeing so much interest, exactly as Natasha said, for those kinds of stories. And we were really lucky to get to chat with uh, community members around New Haven earlier this year to test and, and ask about some of the labels that the curatorial teams have been developing to see what people think of different kinds of stories, different kinds of ways of telling those stories. And we heard from our community members that they really wanted to know a little bit more about what's in the galleries and how they've come there. So a number of instruments that the Peabody Museum has in its collection of Western scientific instruments and tools, they often come from scientific backgrounds that have a complicated history uh, or, or might reflect a background that isn't so well known. And we often heard people show not just surprise, but also really excitement that the museum is willing to speak up up to that history and say with a lot of confidence that we understand that this is where an object like this comes from. This is how it's been used. And this is the purpose of the object in modern science and, and having the space to kind of engage thoughtfully with a story like that with a willing audience has been a really great way to, bring some of those stories to light.
0: Mm. Natasha, did you want to add to that?
3: Yeah, I think just seconding everything Niti said, it really is about responsibility and accountability. I think the museum visitors are curious and hungry for the behind the scenes process um, and they just want to really hear a sort of own up to, the, to how we got here and how we're going to talk about these things going forward because um, there's still so much to learn about how museums can continue to shift directions and priorities and really think critically about the objects that we put on display.
0: Uh, with us also on Zoom, as I mentioned earlier, Kaylin Rogers, Associate Director of Exhibitions at Yale Peabody Museum. Kaylin, as we hear from Niti and Natasha, you know what stands out to you, um, especially in this conversation about thinking how things are labeled and changing the perspectives?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I'm, I'm so thrilled uh, for you to be able to hear today is exactly how much um, these very talented young people are driving this process forward. When we speak with the people who are connected um, to this work directly and then other young people through evaluation, um, you really get the sense that the generations that are coming behind us expect a museum. To be this way, and I think that is really helping us to build momentum. Mm-hmm.
0: Natasha, we heard earlier that you were a, a former member of the SciCore group of, of high school seniors that you mentioned, almost growing up uh, within the Peabody. When it reopens in 2024, when you think about uh, your peers and high schoolers coming up, you know, what do you think will excite them when they enter?
3: I think when we were writing these labels especially, we had SciCore in mind as sort of this permanent fixture at the Peabody. I think similar to the conversations that I would have on the floor every day as a 16-year-old who really didn't know much about STEM or natural history, um, we were hoping that our work would supplement the work that they're already being trained intensely to do, which is really at the end of the day, um, teaching and communication with the public, because You can be an expert in any field, but it comes down to how are you sharing this information with people from different backgrounds, different types of learners, and how can you make these conversations fun and memorable and have um, bites and facts that they can take away from their visit um, and be excited to share with their friends or family. And so I think seeing how our work is going to sort of supplement theirs, um, always imagining them in the space adding to that elevated um, content information if people are curious for more and have more questions that our writing couldn't answer. I think that's the most exciting thing.
0: Uh, Niti, earlier we heard about the sensory labels and I had asked uh, Kaylin about the fact that 10% of of these uh, labels or information that may be uh, curated from outside the museum. And so can you talk about that and differentiate between the the two uh, approaches?
4: definitely. And the diorama labels, which really take the sensory approach are so wonderful in that they are thinking not just about how do we tell folks about what we're seeing, but make them really imagine that they're standing within the landscape. And so a lot of the labels play with things like sound and touch and um, what you might feel in a space like a cold bog or an Arctic tundra and think about what it would be like to stand there, see the animals, feel the air on your face or the grass beneath your feet and try to really immerse people in that landscape. So it's a it's a very different approach from a traditional label. And this is really the expertise that SciCorps is bringing, as Natasha has mentioned. they thought so much about how families and and visitors are experiencing that space, trying to bring their kids or, or bring their families into that landscape, the sensory labels are a great way to, to do that for people just through, you know, less than 30 words using things like alliteration and poetry and play to really rethink how someone might look at, at a landscape or a diorama.
0: Uh, Kaylin, you're still with us, and I'd asked Niti earlier about uh, for visitors who still want the dense scientific insight that there will also be a place for that. Can you talk more about uh, that approach? Uh, Yes,
2: absolutely. So we're developing those resources as well in in tandem with the uh, labels that will be printed in the galleries and are trying to devise the perfect mechanism for sharing those with the public when they visit. Um, But rest assured that we have a a lot of that information at our fingertips and we're eager to share it with those uh, visitors who are interested in it.
0: You know, for, I keep referencing uh, listeners who may have attended uh, the Peabody Museum, but for listeners who have yet to step in, and again, it'll reopen in 2024, maybe, Kaylin, you can briefly walk us through you know, the five galleries and what people uh, can expect uh, to see and how they, again, this will be revamped for that reopening in 2024.
2: Yes, absolutely. And actually, it's between 16 and 20 galleries, depending on how you count. So we're going to have a, a lot of <laughs> A lot of spaces for people to explore. Um, One thing I think that has struck the museum staff is how much more open the space will be. Um, Galleries that never had windows before are going to have windows exposed, windows that I certainly didn't even know existed. Um, So we have on the first floor fossil galleries that go from the beginning of uh, the history of life up to the present day and looking at... um, human interactions with the environment in in that last gallery. And then on the second floor, in a space that previously was all administrative offices, we have our human culture galleries. And then on the third floor, we have our uh, beloved dioramas and the mineral galleries, a life science gallery, and our new um, enlarged discovery room, which is a much more interactive space. And our Hall of Pacific Cultures.
0: Kaylin, I'm going to put you on the spot. What's your favorite gallery in, in the Peabody?
2: <laughs> What's my favorite gallery? I'm not sure. I
0: have a favorite
2: gallery. I do have a couple of favorite objects, um, <laughs> but I one of them. I was I was tickled that for the ancient Mesopotamia gallery, um, the curators put one of the tablets in there just for me because I was so excited by it. It's it's this little. Um, maybe three inch by two inch rectangle of clay and it has two dots on it and then four little sort of carrot shaped scratches and then another little symbol Um, but that is one of the oldest representations of numbers in the history of the world and so the two little dots each represent 10 and uh, the four carrots each represent one so it was 24 units of cloth Mm -hmm. so it was a receipt but we had a a big review with the designers who are um, in toronto Reich and patch on zoom and our map makers and conservators were in the room and i just kept talking about just look at it it's it's the birth (laughs) of numbers and everyone oohed and odd um i don't know if that was just for my benefit but (laughs)
0: Because you mentioned Mesopotamia, you know, again, coming up, mm-hmm. we're going to be hearing about your partnership with Sanctuary Kitchen, but before we get there, you know, this another example of how when we look at uh, some of these um, these artifacts and thinking about the information that a curator would put out there, but then looking into the, the local community, uh, people who uh, live in modern-day Iraq and Syria, and how their perspectives can be added to the, the display that a visitor may see. Can you talk about that?
2: Yes, Absolutely. And that was something that was very important um, for the curatorial team in this gallery, too, was to find um, the, the human experience in these objects on display that are maybe, you know, as many as, say, 4,000 years old. Um, and so bringing that connection through the daily life, um, things like cooking, we have some of the oldest cookbooks in the world, possibly even the oldest cookbook in the world, um, that will be on display in this gallery. And so the curatorial team was very excited to make this connection um to with a with a, a local organization about cooking in the region today.
0: And we'll be hearing more of that coming up here on Where We Live. Uh, Niti, I wanted to hear more from you when we think about, again, this vast collection that the Peabody has, uh, thinking about uh, different ways of interpreting it, uh, bringing uh, new visitors into the space, but also the idea that there's going to be a lot of flex space, uh, this ability uh, to be more nimble, um, to change up the collection, and to see how visitors will respond. Uh, Can you talk about that?
4: Yeah, definitely. And and what I had started talking about a little bit earlier was getting to chat with community members from around New Haven about what they want to hear about an object, because there really are so many different ways to talk about the same thing. Um, So we've had the opportunity to, for example, take an object and write labels, you know, we've had curatorial staff write a number of labels and then test out different versions of the same label with with audiences and see which ones they like to hear more about and so some labels for example might focus on the use of an object and um what it was made out of and and who made it but a different story about that same object might focus on the fact that uh it has been passed down through generations of women in a family or that it has taken on a symbol of um art and cultural representation for a group of people. And many of those stories will impact people in different ways. Someone might feel really excited uh, and feel represented in one version of, of a tale, and someone else might feel really excited about a different one. So the purpose, really, I think, of, of a good label uh, is to think about the different kinds of experiences people are looking for in a museum space and, and think about how we might be able to offer a number of them rather than just one singular experience in the galleries.
0: Natasha, you're still with us, again, helping with uh, the relabeling of uh, these North American dioramas, getting back to your experiences as as an interpreter on the Peabody uh, Museum floor and the questions uh, that you received. Can you give us some more examples of those questions and and how you think this this new approach uh, will help address uh, some of the the feedback that you heard?
3: Yes. So... It's interesting because in the writing process i think what came natural to the most of us was really modeling it after the interpretation skills that we had built all throughout high school so in drafting the labels and the elevated content um we sort of structured it like a conversation um starting with guiding questions like where are we what can we see what had to change to get to where we are today um i think it's easy at first glance to look at a lot of these dioramas and see them as these landscapes of wilderness, you know, bereft of human interaction, um, so distant and far removed from, you know, where we are in the space of the museum. Um, But really trying to, again, bring in those histories of human presence, um, long relationships of caretaking with the land um, from different populations. And so we did our best to sort of model model the writing after those conversations, add in fun things like, did you know facts? And really run as far away as we could from the structure of the of the really long, dense text that was there before um, to make it more accessible, not in a way that dumbed anything down, but just made the language more more clear and concise um, so that people could sort of follow the signposts of what it was that they were most interested in. Mm-hmm.
0: Kayla and Natasha mentioned the Pixar effect, and again, this might be a way to excite people, including families and children, um, when they're viewing this particular diorama.
2: Absolutely. Um, we we love being able to include fun little surprises or jokes when we can, um, because this is informal education, and we really are here also as a social space. Um, and a place of engagement and, and coming together. So anytime we can do that, we'd love to.
0: We're gonna hear more about these community partnerships that the Yale Peabody Museum has been working on, but I wanted to thank Niti Jen for being here and Natasha Ghazali. Thank you so much for explaining the work that you're doing behind the scenes. I think we're all waiting for that reopening in 2024.
4: Thanks Lucy, great to be thank here. You. Yes,
3: very exciting.
0: You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpa Vanchel. Coming up, we're going to hear more about Sanctuary Kitchen. How do they fit into this uh, new storytelling approach at the Yale Peabody Museum? If you have a question or comment, you can join us too, 888 720 9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, we're learning how Yale Peabody Museum is working to change its storytelling around its collections, while it undergoes major renovations before reopening to the public in 2024. With this on Zoom is Kaylin Rogers, Associate Director of Exhibitions at Yale Peabody Museum. Uh, Kaylin, before we hear from a chef from this nonprofit Sanctuary Kitchen, tell us more about this partnership and how it fits in with this storytelling approach.
2: Absolutely. Um, so we are two years away from opening and are now in the space where we are beginning to reach out to community partners. Um, and Sanctuary Kitchen was a natural fit for us um, as an organization in New Haven and one that the museum has partnered with before. Um, and as we were discussing earlier, the fact that cooking is a theme in the gallery um, related to this area in the world felt like a great first step so we reached out to the sanctuary kitchen um, staff and had a series of meetings earlier this year talking about what their needs were and what our needs were and how we might work together. Um, We thought we were going to start with a focus group talking through some of the themes and objects that will be on display in the gallery and things like terminology um, for geographic regions. And then we would move into a series of writing workshops to support the chefs in telling their stories um, and developing those for for press and public programming. Um,
0: And so Okay. okay. <laughs> One of the chefs that that, that participated in the writing uh, workshop uh, is with us on the phone, uh, Rawa Ghazi, who's a chef at Sanctuary Kitchen. Rawa, welcome
5: to the show. Hi. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for so having t- us today.
0: So tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you got involved with Sanctuary Kitchen.
5: Yeah. So I'm Rawa Ghazi from Iraq. I start work with the Sanctuary Kitchen from 2019. And I'm uh, really happy to have this opportunity to work with them. It is a really nice job. And um, it has changed my life because it is, uh, 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 they let me more open to know other culture and to do a relation with other women from different countries. And otherwise, it helped me a lot with, um, uh, as a job to support my kids and my family. So I'm really happy to be part of the sanctuary kitchen.
0: And Kaylin mentioned these writing workshops uh, that were done uh, with the Peabody Museum, and you participated. Uh, what did you focus on, Rawa?
5: So working with the Albaid Peabody Museum uh, was so excited to me. I invited to work with them. I had gone uh, to visit the museum in a bath with my kids, and it is really beautiful. So... Uh, And it was really amazing. We met for three meetings until now with the staff and we're working with them and with another chef also from Syria. They encourage us to write a story about our food and our culture. Mm -hmm.
0: And what did you focus on, Rawa? What particular thing about uh, your culture and food that you wanted to share?
5: So I I wrote about when I came to USA. So I was there with a small family, just me and my husband and one son. And so I, in this time, I feel the exile is really hard because I raised in big family, seven sisters and two brothers. So I am the youngest. So, you know, the exile take the most beautiful moment from me. So that's why I try to do something to bring back the memories to my soul. So I start uh, to cooking. And uh, the most thing make me like really remember my family when I start cook and the smell the same uh, smell when my mom, she was cooking in our kitchen in, in my country. So I was never drinking tea before. So in America, I uh, get uh, used to wake up in the morning, make a tea with cardamom, just don't drink it, but just to try to smell same the smell that my mom she was were there to us, and uh, also uh, because uh, I came here uh, just me and my husband, my son. Then I have uh, after uh, one year I have uh, one daughter. another three, four years I have another daughter. So now we are three. Uh, I have three kids with my husband. So I do do same dish. My mom was do it for us. It is really famous. It's called dolma. It is the grape leaves stuffed with um, uh, vegetables and lamb. And we also stuff cooking the vegetables such as uh, uh, pepper, uh, eggplant, uh, zucchini, and we uh, we put it in a tub as a layer, and we we fill it after they cook it upside down. So it's really delicious. And we always have a, a, a little, um, um, you know, tradition to do this dish. So my mom and my sister were sitting around the table, listening to the uh, really beautiful and famous music, uh, like romantic Arabic music uh, for the singer. Uh, her name is Uncle Doom. So I try to bring all these memories and do it here in America so to let me feel I'm not, like, alone. Uh, mm. So I... To connect with my family, so I try also bring my kids and my husband also uh, sitting and uh, around the table listening same music, to you know to bring all the beautiful memories back to me.
0: Those sound really lovely, Rawa, and thank you for sharing those uh, memories, Kaylin. Uh, well, uh, you know, really nice to hear from Rawa thinking about again uh, stories of, of her native country and how you work that into you know these uh, collections that the Peabody has when people come and to learn about ancient Mesopotamia, um, and then to contrast that with uh, reading uh, memories from Rawa about growing up in Iraq and her family.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, it's, it's beautiful to hear it. I've, you know, had the privilege of working with Rawa on these workshops and, and seeing the story develop, but um, I'm so thrilled to be able to bring that into the museum for other uh, visitors to experience as well, to give them a, a new perspective into the other materials that they're seeing. Mm.
0: Nathan's calling in from Old Saybrook. Nathan, we just have under a minute. What did you want to share about the Peabody?
1: Well, first of all, I want to say that rawa it's not only changed Rawa's life, but she's changed many other people's lives, too. Um, When I was a student at Yale in the 60s, I knew uh, Professor Rudolf Zallinger, who created the greatest uh, dinosaur uh, painting in the world. And I also wanted to send a shout out to Armand Morgan, who's a docent there, and he gave a personal... Uh, tour to a handicapped friend of mine who was studying to be a paleontologist uh, two winters ago. So uh, the Peabody is just a a gem of New England and uh, of the Ivy League. Thank you very much.
0: Nathan, before you go, I wanted to ask you, with the reopening in 2024, what are you most excited about?
1: Um, I think the the way the um, fossils will be re- uh, configured more more historically accurately. Uh, I don't know if everybody knows but they're in pieces up in Canada getting cleaned, uh, but when they are reassembled they're going to be uh they're going to restore some of the more uh, authentic uh parts of uh like a brontosaurus for example which were not necessarily uh, all accurately brontosaurus uh, fossils. Mm.
0: Yes, Nathan, I'm excited for that, too. Thank you for calling in. And Kaylin, you had mentioned that about the dinosaurs up in Canada right now. Uh, such a pleasure to hear from you and your team and also Rawa as the work continues for the public reopening in 2024. I want to thank again Kaylin Rogers for being here, Associate Director of Exhibitions at Yale Peabody Museum, and Rawa Ghazi for joining us as chef with nonprofit Sanctuary Kitchen. Thank you for your time today.
5: Thank you. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Where We Live, today's show produced by Katie Pellico. We'll be back tomorrow.